Hello and welcome to Off the Record. We've been getting more and more feedback lately, and we really like incorporating that into our show. So go to offtherecord.fm. Feel free to ask us any sort of question or email us with any feedback, and we'll try to work that in. Um, this week, we're recording a little earlier than normal, but I think we have a great amount of topics to dive into. First is net neutrality. We've had this on our list for a long time, uh, but we think the time is finally right to get into it. It's a topic, frankly, I hope everyone that would listen to this knows a lot about, but I think that's not the case. Uh, and that's because it's kind of boring on a, on a, just on a legal kind of government-y sense, but it actually is really important. Um, and I feel like, Jesse, you are the best kind of person that, you are the type of person that doesn't care that it's boring. You always get into these things anyway, and I appreciate that. I'm I'm a, I'm a political nerd, so, you know, it, it does go that way. But I think that's the thing we need to talk about is a lot of people get zoned out the second you start say the word politics, and it's not about politics. This is about the music, and if you're a music fan, you need to actually do something about this, and it's super, super important because this is the type of thing that everything that's been good about music lately, this could reverse it, and that's why you need to pay attention for 10 minutes and then take one minute to do something about it. Totally, yeah, and so... So just go over the basics before we get into a real conversation about it. The, the basics of net neutrality are it's a principle that internet service providers and governments should treat all data on the internet equally. So that means, let's just call you user X. You're no different from an article you read on the internet. You're no different from a website like Properties Act. You're no different from a platform like Facebook or anything that's attached to it. It is just the same. And that's kind of... Uh, in like a very abstract, our society is a very scary, terrible place. It's kind of a beautiful thing to think about. There's this whole other world that we created within our world, and the principle of net neutrality is that it is all one. It is all equal. And that is why the internet, over 20 or 30 years, has developed into this incredible thing where you can do something as silly as watch a cat video to as serious as making a billion dollar business like Facebook that then can make an IPO and be worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and it's, and what's so great is that hopefully it was as easy as a process to get onto the internet for you to watch that kid, to watch that cat video as it was for Mark Zuckerberg to say, let me poke around the internet and maybe write some code to make Facebook. And of course those are two very different things, but the principle of getting there should be the same. Uh, and so there is the FCC, and the FCC is the Federal Communications Commission, and it is their job, they're an independent agency of the government, it's their job to regulate interstate and international uh, communications. So that means radio, television, satellite, cable, and, and that, that, of course, includes internet. Um, so in, on one end, like they are... They are the police to make sure that everything is equal. But on the flip side, they may be the ones that are making it unequal. <laughs> yes. So that so that, I guess that is America. But that is that is um, it is technically their job to regulate in a good way. But it but what we are at risk now is having the internet regulated in a very bad and harmful way. Right. I guess that's kind of as basic as we can put that. For some reason that isn't um, something that appealed to you, I highly suggest you go into the show notes and click on the link 
uh, about John Oliver destroys the FCC is the link. Yes. Um, John Oliver is probably made the funniest way of explaining why this is so important in a non-musical way. But I think what's important now is let me tell you, person who doesn't care about politics, who loves the internet because, you know, you get to um, write funny things on Tumblr, but you love music. This is why this is important. Um, before the internet, the major labels controlled who you got to hear about and who got popular. And some indies sometimes would shine through, but there was never really a time that like a DIY musician or, you know, in general, what's been great about the internet is that bands who we all like are able to get popular now. Um, not the band that it has tons of ad money is forced down our throat we have bands every day, and you know, like I think a great example of it is two bands that Zach and I worked with in our scene. Is that Man Overboard when they had, were on a tiny label at the time, Run for Cover, or Real Friends who were doing it themselves were able to get very popular because fans liked them and they weren't on a label. Or even watching what happened, what's happening with you and guys Knuckle Puck. This is fans telling other fans about music, and that's what gets bands popular. But before this, you could never do that unless your record was in all the record stores. That took a huge infrastructure and everything, and that's why one of the reasons that I always say that the best thing about CDs dying is that it takes away the power of major labels. The best thing about radio dying is it takes away the power of major labels, and we get a democratization of music. What gets popular now is the music that us people in our community want to spread. And so where net neutrality comes into this is that if uh, the cable companies are able to say, unless you pay me, Comcast, who already has plenty of money, um, to make your website go faster, I'm going to basically slow it down, not make it work. Or here's an even greater example is Netflix now is paying some of the... Um, cable companies, so your Comcasts, your Cablevisions, your Time Warners, um, to make their site go faster. And Google does this as well. So they could start saying, hey, Bandcamp, unless you're doing this, I'm going to slow you down and I'm going to make it painful for you to stream everything. And then people are going to be less likely to listen to music on Bandcamp. And Bandcamp is one of the main services that's democratizing music and making it easy for us all to listen to small acts and make them bigger as we spread them. So this has the potential to go back to what it was like when there was major labels controlling the radio airwaves and you couldn't have the Macklemores of the world or even down to the real friends, the man overboards and the knuckle pucks of the world. And this is super, super important. And if you really believe that, like, you know, you're discovering most of the music you like from friends recommendations, not from something that's being shoved down your throat by a label. I think we all have seen that now. This needs to be important to you, and it's 60 seconds of your life to comment on this and tell the FCC that you do not want these cable companies to choose what you get forced down your throat. Yeah, and uh, so also in the show notes, and those can be found at offtherecord.fm backslash episodes, is um, I think it's important to think about some of these companies like a bank camp. Think of, uh, it, it's easy to not consider bank camp to be a like real person, obviously, because they're not a real person. They are just a company. But what they are providing is a service to let all these smaller bands that hopefully can become big bands or hopefully just become successful or hope you know just have a way to get their music out there in a 
in a non-frustrating, non-expensive format. They're a company that is enabling that growth in our music scene. And in our specific music scene, Bandcamp has been so essential, especially as we've talked about at nauseum already. It's just like a run for cover. Um, and you, the consumer, you, the, you, the music lover, you want, you love that you found, let's say real friends through Bandcamp, And that's great for you. Um, uh, but if, Suddenly, Bandcamp becomes a lot more popular, and they're ma- and they're taking up a ton of bandwidth from, let's say, Comcast. Uh, Comcast can say, "Hey, we're going to make it so the person listening to your service it takes them twice as long to buffer this song, or it's choppy in the middle, or the audio quality is going to be bad, things like that." And then they'll have to say, "Hey, Bandcamp, we're going to charge you X dollars a month." if you want it to be unthrottled. And to think about throttling, you should think about your cell phone plan. Uh, I'm sure some of you guys or girls still have uh, unlimited data plans from like T-Mobile or something because your parents had a family plan when you were younger, right? And, you know, it's unlimited is a fake word. If you're using 10 gigabytes of data a month, these cell phone carriers like AT&T or T-Mobile will throttle your data. So that means it's going to take longer for you to watch a video that if you've already used, quote unquote, a lot of your unlimited data versus someone who has not. Um, and so what they're going to, what they could do to someone like Bandcamp is say, hey, you really need to pay us a lot of money if you want your consumers to be happy with how they're listening to music. And I mean, first of all, like Bandcamp obviously makes money, but I don't know that they're the wealthiest company in the world. So if this price is too much for Bandcamp to pay, then they can't do anything about it. And then uh, and then they don't necessarily get all the complaints. The, the unknowing 15-year-old fan doesn't necessarily know about net neutrality, which is why we're doing this. But So they're going to complain to real friends that like their song sounds weird or bad or something. And real friends are going to say, hey, Bandcamp, we can't use your platform anymore if this is how it's going to be. And then all these bands that are, one, getting popular on the service and helping the service grow are not going to be able to use that service anymore because they can't fork over the money. And that means this is not an equal playing ground for Bandcamp or maybe someone like SoundCloud compared to Google, who obviously don't want to pay, but they don't really have a choice because they need to keep their customers happy. Yeah, and so to take the slippery slope even further, so here's then what happens is then after Real Friends complains to Bandcamp or starts leaving Bandcamp, um, Bandcamp then says, you know what, we'll pay. So they've now been extorted out of this money, but what they then do is they say to all the bands, they say, hey, instead of taking 10 to 15%, we now need to take 25%. So then all your favorite bands have even less money, and we all know bands don't have much money these days, and the music's being taken out of musicians' hands and being put into these corporations' hands, and then your favorite band breaks up because they don't have enough money to sustain themselves. So that's part of what makes this important, too. To get even further down the slippery slope is that if net neutrality doesn't happen, the next thing that's going to happen is when you go to Property of Zach or MuseFormation or whatever your favorite music news website is, what could then happen is they'll say, you know what, Property of Zach didn't pay me um, their fees to make this website go forward. 
I'm going to take this a step further and to subsidize the fact that I'm giving you the internet, I'm going to put an ad up for the new Pink single, and you're going to have to listen to the new Pink single to read Property of Zach. We all know you don't want to do that. So please take the 60 seconds to act on this. It sounds so like grandiose of statement because it sounds ridiculous, right? It sounds like, how could this be a thing? It does. And then, you know, we could say, oh, this is never going to happen or it probably won't happen for years. But like the thing is, it's actually already happened. As Jesse mentioned, Netflix has been paying Comcast and there's going to be a link. Oh, you know, every well, you should, if you have not watched this John Oliver video that's in the show notes, you should. And there's this image in the middle of the video where it shows Netflix uh, bandwidth capabilities to a user, to a consumer like you, like they were steady paced, so meaning the streaming quality was always the same. And then it plummeted. And uh, Comcast said, hey, you got to pay us, or it's going to, or the, it's just going to be bad streaming quality for everyone. And so Netflix paid up. And truly the next day, uh, <laughs> Netflix streaming capabilities didn't only match where they were before it dipped, they skyrocketed above. And that has created a fast lane. And that's sort of the other aspect of this is that not only is the FCC considering making it okay for Comcast to sort of bully companies or Time Warner or whoever to sort of bully companies to say, hey, you need to pay us. Comcast, uh, FCC is also considering sort of a fast lane versus a normal lane. So if you're Netflix, your streaming capabilities could always be at this base level. But if you want to make your consumers even happier, you know, pay us, pay us this fast lane price and the streaming quality will be even better. And maybe a company like Hulu can't pay that, meaning they'll, they'll be normal, but Comcast has this ability to be ahead. And, you know, the funny, not funny thing about this is that's kind of what normal life is. Um, yes. But we, part of what makes the internet so great every day is that we don't have to think about worries like that. It's just always been this way. It has always been the same. And yes, you may have to pay like, Ten dollars a month to watch Netflix, but that's a business. the The basic platform of the internet, which is incredibly complex, but like the basic platform of the internet, is that we can do whatever we want here, unless you're not breaking the law, like selling something illegal. But that that's again, that's a business move. That's not a basic rights move, uh, and that's so important. It's just we are recording this podcast over Skype and over a software that we downloaded from the internet and all of this stuff and who knows maybe i think you know i think a lot of this stuff that we use every day will not be able to exist and that is so scary yeah and what's the biggest problem is is it just puts more money in comcast's pocket instead of people like you or me or zach who are creating things you like or your favorite band and i want to also take this one step further is that if you are a person who cares enough to vote it's very important, you, and music's the most important thing to you, it's very important you see where the people you're voting for stand on net neutrality. I can also tell you, usually if they're a Republican, they have a pretty bad stance on this. Usually if they're a Democrat, they usually are for net neutrality, but that's not always the case. Do the investigative work and don't vote for people who want to put more money in Comcast who already is bribing all these politicians. Um, and putting money into their pockets like, you know, there's a really disgusting thing in this country that there's these corporations get to put so much money into these politicians through donations and making sure you're voting for people who don't 
favor the corporations over people is super, super important if you love music. Yeah, and I can't stress how, like, just simple and great the John Oliver video is because... <laughs> yes. No, no, it's the... It's, uh, I would say it's the best political rant of the modern age. Yeah, and, you know, the, he says it very simply. Uh, a, a company like Compass, Comcast spends millions of dollars a year in D.C. Uh, lobbying. And if you don't know what lobbying is, it's just like you are talking to people in Washington all day, the people that make these laws or help create these laws or help vote these laws to, to do your bidding, basically. And million that means they're... Uh, contributing to campaign. I mean, Jesse, you could probably talk about this better than I could, but they're just, they're, they're securing their future. They're securing their desires. They're either say, what they basically say to these politicians is they say, you're going to vote for my interests or else I'm going to give the other guy money and get rid of you. And, you know, it's a very big thing of that. We, in this modern era, there is millions upon millions of dollars being spent by corporations to just influence these politicians and, it's a really gross thing, which also I would say, uh, if you find that disgusting, Lawrence Lessig's May Day pack is something that you should uh, look into and give money or support or give a tweet or Facebook if you want to get the money out of politics. That's one of that is the root of everything that's going wrong in this country right now is the money in politics. So, if you want to take it a step further, go and support May Day pack. Luckily, in a case like this, like yes, Comcast is lobbying millions of dollars, but. You know, thankfully, I would say companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, the large tech companies, Facebook, they're actually, of course, on our side for something like this because, you know, Facebook doesn't want to have to pay God knows how many millions of dollars a year so you can like a photo of that silly cat video, you know? And so on this end, like, unfortunately, you know, Bandcamp, spend mil Bandcamp can't spend millions of dollars uh, to lobby, but, you know, it isn't like an empty fight, and I think it's a very worthwhile fight. Uh, John Oliver's traffic from his video sent so much traffic to the FCC that the commenting system actually broke. Uh, and it's pretty funny, I think, that someone that's meant to regulate the, the Internet cannot have a strong enough Internet service to handle traffic. Um, but still, like you know, there, things are making a difference here. Us talking about this hopefully makes at least one of you look into some of the show note links and go on from there. Um, but there's this other thing related to music too uh, that I, I thought was kind of interesting. And I didn't even realize it until I read this article on The Verge, but T-Mobile has enacted this plan of, it's called music freedom. Um, so let's say you have two gigabytes of data for your cell phone plan a month. Uh, if you listen to Spotify or iTunes radio, if you stream those platforms, they won't count. They won't count against your two gigabytes, and that when I I just saw that pass by on Twitter earlier this week, or maybe it was last week, and I thought, wow, that rules. I wish Verizon would do that, and I'm on Verizon, and then I, I yes, as am I, but I think I'm switching to T-Mobile because of this. But should you? Because so what I was reading on this verge, and I thought it was a really good point, is that sounds great, but it's arbitrary, and it's a it it, it is a slippery slope, like. Now they're deciding, T-Mobile's deciding what does and what does not count against your data. And it's, it's very kind of similar, I think, to does Netflix count towards being throttled? Should they or should they not? Like, I think it's a, actually a pretty similar thing. And it sounds great for us because it is great. But who says, you know, they could have easily just said actually streaming counts twice as more. Like it, they're not treating the data the same. Uh, well, here, but here's the interesting thing. You know they're letting their users vote which of the services count? Yes. 
that I think is a very interesting thing is we're getting to decide now, Does is that a huge bum out if Bandcamp and SoundCloud, for example, who don't have all the money in the world, don't get to be one of those services and it's only uh, Beats, RDO, and Spotify? Sure, that's a super big bum out, but like, you know, if they're going to let the majority of the music services go through this, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And I think letting their users do it. I'm, I I got to tell you, I'm kind of a T-Mobile fan. I am too. Well, the CEO uh, is great. He's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a weirdo. But like, it's, I, you know, I think they're doing some cool things and I'm leaning towards supporting them with my dollars. Instead of Verizon, who's trying to get uh, net neutrality repealed, who are scumbags, and I don't want to give them money anymore. So I'm I, I'm leaning towards I'm switching to T-Mobile. I'm waiting to see how this pans out. Yeah, and so I guess to sum this up, I just truly, if I would very much urge you to go to fcc.gov backslash comments to leave your thoughts to watch this John Oliver video just to keep updated with this topic. I, in an abstract view, it is kind of very boring because it's just like oh. People are spent. Uh, big corporate, gross companies are spending millions of dollars to get what they want. But at the but like this is something that could actually deter from what you do every day on the internet. And even if you're just someone who enjoys browsing the internet, or that you're someone that works on the internet, all of my jobs are based on the internet. Uh, so if something dramatically changes from what I've been using the internet for in some fashion for you know, that's 20 years of my life or let's just say 15 years of my life, whatever, like that would be kind of crazy because the internet to me is this whole world and it acts in a certain way, just like a country acts in a certain way. And so to have that just blatantly changed because, you know, two monopolies or one rather, sorry, one monopoly like wants to, you know, make more money, uh, that's kind of scary, and that shouldn't be a case. So just just do your homework. It's important. We will. I think we'll probably have another segment or two here if something crazy happens in the future. But sixty seconds. All you have to write is, "I support net neutrality. I don't want ads and throttling to be on my internet." That's it. Two sentences done. Sixty seconds of your life. Uh, so our first sponsor this week is uh, once again Bad Timing Records. Bad Timing Records has a new Park record coming out on July 15th. It's the band's first new music in eight years. Uh, there's a 10-inch uh, EP with a screen-printed B-side and a book that comes along with it. Knuckle Puck also have a 12-inch EP with a screen-printed B-side for sale as well. And then Bad Timing is also has uh, records from Valencia, Acceptance, and others on deck. So go to badtimingrecords.com. And here we go. So our next topic, uh, Drew Miller and Jesse pointed this article my way. Drew Miller, who's an editor at Noisy. Uh, I, I think it's Millard, actually. Millard? I will correct yeah. that in the show notes. Uh, he, he's an editor at Noisy, and Noisy is a subdivision of Vice. I'm sure if you read Property Zach at all, we link to them several times a week. Um, so he wrote, this article, he wrote this blog called On Music, Blogging, and the Horrific Intersection of the Two. Uh, and... This is a topic I have with people every single week, uh, and we will not have it on the podcast every single week, but it's just because it is truly my main line of work that I have this sort of conversation of, you're a blogger, you're terrible, or what you do is great, or what do you think if you're terrible or great? Um, And I think it's something that develops every year as maybe institutions, let's say, like a all press or a spin or a 
you know, the Rolling Stone becomes maybe less important and people put more faith in the individual voice of someone like me or someone like Jason Tate or someone at Noisy. Um, so Jesse, what do you, do you put faith in bloggers to tell you what music to like? And I know you're different and I know you were both have different views because we work in this thing, but do you put faith in a certain writer to tell you what might be good? Um, at times in my life, I did. I think this is what's interesting is, so what Drew Miller's talking about is the idea that now blogs don't matter as much as people think. And I half agree, half don't agree. Um, I don't personally use blogs as much. I use the word of mouth of everybody around me. But like, you know, there's been periods in my life and um. My good friend Elliot Aronow started um, a site called uh, Record Labels Without All the Vows, so it was RCRDLBL. Um, and he kind of said the premise of it when they started it was like, you know, you're in your mid-20s to 40s and you don't have enough time to investigate all the music anymore. We'll just tell you it's good. And for me, I, as we've discussed previously, listen to a lot of nerdy dance music and one of the ways I find out about that, because I don't have a lot of time to do it, is there's a couple blogs I trust, and I will generally hit play on anything they put in their stream. They're a little different than an Absolute Punk or a Property of Zach in that they just post, like, hey, listen to this. And I generally, when I have, like, some time, I just hit play down the links while I'm doing some writing or whatever and find what I like out of that. But to his point that... So the big premise of this article was like this kid, Kadeem, who raps as corduroys saying, you know, he's quitting rap because uh, he's not getting the uh, blogs uh, to post about him. And Drew Millard's point is that, no, you know, what matters is, is people talking about it. And he is right. The biggest way people discover music and the thing they trust the most is their friends and peers who they trust um, saying something's good. You know, if I watch Zach and... Thomas, who he does bad timing with, both saying, talking about a record, or a few of the other people I follow on Twitter, I'm going to hit play on that record, and I care much more about that than seeing a post, but at the same time, I also trust blogs, and there's a lot of people who, you know, we, we one of the things I write about in my book is that it's music discovery is about chipping away at a stone a lot of the time, is that you see somebody's name seven times, and you go, you know what, I need to find out whatever what this is about because I've seen this name so many times. It might be a sticker in a bathroom wall. You see their name that on a tour. Then, you know, you see a review of a record. And eventually you go, let me just figure out what this is. And that's so much of what this is about. So I think it's silly to say that blogs aren't important, but I think it's also silly to quit music because blogs aren't doing it. It's pro because people aren't talking about you. That's why blogs aren't posting. And it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing of that. Blogs are going to post about you if everybody's talking about you because blogs are a part of this culture. I'm sure, and I think something you could speak volumes about this is Property of Zach isn't just bands you love. It's a lot of the time you have to write about a band because everybody else is talking about it. Property of Zach is mostly bands I don't love. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I laugh about this, but I think I probably listen to 20% of the music I post about. Um, and that doesn't mean I hate the other 80%. Could you clarify? So when you say you listen to it, meaning you've ever given them a chance or meaning that I mean, you enjoy yeah, them? I mean, I, I enjoy them. I have them in my iTunes library. I have their records. I go to their shows. That is what I mean. 
Uh, I have I certainly have not heard every single band I've ever posted on the website, but that number is much higher. To reiterate that user, protest Zach because he hasn't listed every band on his site. You should all <laughs> stop listening to it. He's a fraud. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Really, really just really helpful. Um, so there are definitely blogs like, I think one's called like Pigeons and Planes or Pitchfork or whatever. What Actually, Pitchfork's a good example. Um, there are tons of bands worthy of being posted about. They could even bring you a lot of traffic that a blog might think, you know what, this isn't cool, we're not going to post about it. Uh, so there's kind of two intersections of music blogs, I think. There's a music blog like Property of Zach that if you are on Rise Records or Hopeless Records or Run for Cover Records, we're going to post about your band. Like, because we cover those labels and those music genres. Uh, and we're not necessarily only covering stuff that I think is cool. Because frankly, if I only did that, then I would you would see five posts about Blink-182 in a row then one about brand new every five months when they tease you, and that would be it. You know, like it is my what I want to do is I still care about the news of all these bands on Hopeless or Fearless or Rise, even if I don't love the bands or even listen to them, because to me it's interesting. To me, like I really like our music world and I like how it all plays together, and that doesn't necessarily mean I need to like the music, um, but. You know, websites like Pitchfork, you know, brand, posting about brand new could bring them a ton of traffic, but they don't post about brand new. Uh, and that's a decision that they editorially, internally make for themselves. So th those are like the sort of two different sections. Um, but for me, I post about almost everything in our music scene because that's my job. That's what people come to the website for. Uh, I don't really think there are many websites in our music world, except noisy, actually, that kind of pick and choose what they're going to post about. I kind of forget your question, Jesse, but... Uh, well, I, I, I mean, here's here's an interesting thing I think you said that we should comment that ties together, that neutrality thing. Just now when you were talking about who you post about, you mentioned that you post about bands that are on labels. So we just had a big tangent about how bands could get popular and, like, you know, a lot of this is about the democratization of music and that right. the fans choose who they're talking about. But you just kind of were like, oh, well, I post about these bands on these labels. What makes you post about a band, I think, is an interesting subject to delve into. And, you know, when do you decide that this band is worthy of being covered and what is that criteria when they're not on a hopeless or a fearless or a rise? Yeah, that's a good question. I think so on a, on a very small level of muse, of bands that are truly just figuring out. Like last week we talked about the bands that are like we're going to give this a year or not. And so on that level of bands, we have a feature specifically catered to smaller bands that no one really knows about yet and that feature is called Showcase. So every weekend we post about two to four showcases. And our wonderful employee Ashley handles them all and Ashley rules. You know, Ashley does rule. I met with her yesterday. and but, uh, Nice. Yeah. So what we do is we have a basic set of questions. I think it's 10 or 12 questions. And these smaller bands that you have probably never heard of and hopefully hear of again, but at this point have never heard of, answer these 10 specific questions, same for every band, and we, we uh, embed their music so you can listen to it. And hopefully you listen to it. And hopefully... Hopefully that band has something else for us to post about in the future. So on the on the very small set, there's that. And that is because I feel like it is our job, frankly, because we post all day about bands on big labels. It is our job to 
not necessarily give back, but to showcase literally these bands that you might not be hearing about. And that's very important to me. Uh, but on the in-between level, often it kind of just comes down to what I see is happening. Uh, it is sort of my job to... I, I'm not calling myself a tastemaker because that makes me sound like a douchebag, but it's my <laughs> job to like see how trends are moving, right? Like this Hotel Your Somos records are really good examples, actually. Uh, I had never heard of Somos before. Uh, this record came out, and then the record came out. I had gotten a few press releases about it, and I didn't post about it at all, at all, because some bands I just don't post about. And there's no—that's the thing. There's no kind of rule of thumb. I don't have a—I have a large team, but I don't have—I'm not. No one's my boss, so I, you know, I am the one that posts everything on the site. So I kind of decide what I'm going to put up or not. And sometimes it's just arbitrary, and there is no great thing. Um, but that's my freedom, obviously. Um, but so for Somos, I saw people, I saw my friends posting, talking about them on Twitter, and I knew Jesse recorded the record. But you know, not everything Jesse records I care about because sometimes Jesse does weird dance stuff. Sometimes the record doesn't work. I, I can fully say it. Not every pro yeah. record a producer does is great. That's just the yeah, fact of the matter. I don't care which uh, producer you are. Totally, totally. And so, but I saw these people I trust musically talking about the Somos record. So I was like, oh, I'm going to listen to it. And you know what? I listened to it and I was like, holy shit, I know this is going to be a top 10 record for me this year. And now I post about that band. <laughs> so, like, that's how that works. It's this weird, I just, I don't know. It just happens. Uh, it's, I would say it's different for every case. Rise Records signs a band that I've never heard of before because they're a weird metalcore band from The Hills Have Eyes. And oh, that was good. And uh, oh yeah, well, <laughs> and uh, and I have and I post about them because they could be in two years from now they might have sold fifty thousand records first week because that's how Rise Records is. But on the case by case basis, it's always different. It's and it, that's kind of interesting on its own. But there are definitely bands that hit me up twice a week on Facebook, which is the worst thing you could ever do. Please don't do that. Uh, and I'm oh. like, I, I don't want to post about your band, actually. You ruined your chance because you could find my email in a hundred places on the internet and you chose to IM me on Facebook. <laughs> uh, like, that's not yeah. conducive of me posting about your band. So for this rapper guy to bring it back, that's quitting rap, like, I don't know. There are definitely bands that I don't post about and that's a choice I make because I think they're disgusting or because I think they make really bad music and I don't think they're going to bring me traffic, so what's the point? You know, there's there's no specific set and unfortunately for this guy, for this rapper, like maybe he just didn't click with anyone. And if he didn't click with any of these bloggers, and again, I'm not saying that bloggers make are the only thing that make bands popular because I think I actually just said a lot of my friends were listening to Somo, so I listened and then I started to post about them. You know, as Drew actually really said well in this article, like bloggers don't make people popular, people make people people make people popular, and that's exactly right. And I am just a person, um, and I am just I just have a larger voice because I have more followers than you on Twitter, uh, and so hopefully you'll listen to me posting about that just as you would listen to your best friend on Twitter posting about it. It's. It was kind of even what we got into about Warp Tour with uh, not putting enough women on last week. Is that there's a very chicken or chi what came first, the chicken or the egg thing? Right. Is that like so? If a blog, you know, like uh, there's a great quote from um, 
the head of Windish or maybe McDonough, I can't remember, one of the biggest booking agents in the world, though, let's say, they say, like, basically, if you get Pitchfork Best New Music, they're going to put, they're going to reach out to you and say, I'm I'm willing to book you. That's going to get you huge things. And so the fact of the matter is, if, for example, your friends that you follow on Twitter are talking about a band, they're going to get, you're going to get on property of Zach and you're going to get more popular from it. But conversely... There's the, the thing of that really the real power of this is that people talking and if you get people talking, you're going to get on blogs. And this guy Corduroy did not have people talking because people do it. And I think that this goes to the thing is that if you're in a band or you're someone who promotes bands today, the biggest, most important thing is to get and keep people talking. I, it's the whole first two chapters of my book is that's what's most important if you want to get to that step. But what's also important, though, is every once in a while, somebody pitches a blog like, you know, a great example is when I was a music writer. Like, you know, if you write to me and say, for example, that, you know, you're a combination of Fugazi and um, Screeching Weasel or a combination of like a little bit of weird indie punk and pop punk, I'm probably going to take a listen to you right when I read that press release. But when I see that you sound like the Baja men, sound <laughs> like the Spin Doctors, I'm not ever listening to you. But here's the thing is like when I used to write for big music sites, that could get you a lot of listens. So I think it's one of those things that to sum this all up is you need to attack it on both fronts. Yes, you need to do press releases. Yes, you need to go through the proper way of pitching bloggers, but you also have to get people talking, and people talking is the most important thing. But go for both things. I, in my book, I call it um, trickle-down promotions versus grassroots promotions. Grassroots promotions is getting people ta talking. Trickle-down is getting big breaks. Like, you know, the ultimate would be, for example, getting on Jimmy Fallon today. That's trickle down. That's going to get a lot of people to listen to you, but it's also very unlikely you're going to get on Jimmy Fallon unless people are already talking about you. So it's much more important to do the grassroots. Yeah, and something I'll even say beyond that, and then we can go into our next segment, is even if we post about, even if a property is acting absolute punk and you know all these music websites, right? And even, let's say, this rapper gets posted about on all the websites he'd like to get posted about, it doesn't necessarily matter. It, you know, it's still, it's still on the people, and we're not going to, like, go into this, but a band that we've been posting about since the day, the art, the third or fourth interview property Zach ever did was with the Swellers, and the Swellers just broke up or are breaking up, and they're a band that you know we're on a label, have been on several labels, have been posted about monthly on all of our websites, and unfortunately sometimes it just doesn't click with people. And at the end of the day, like I can post about a band I love all I want, and sometimes they just don't get big, and sometimes it just doesn't click. And so, I, you know, I'd say for this like guy who's going to be like quitting rap because all these websites aren't posting about him, like, is that what you need to be worrying about, or do you need to be worrying about just making people give a shit and making people want to buy your music instead of just blogging about your music and not buying it? And it is a chicken or an egg thing, but I would just say don't focus on something that actually may not matter because even if you get there, even if every website start, starts posting about this rapper now, people might not like his music. And then what? <laughs> yes. Well, so and to tie that together is, it, you know, you first have to make great music and then you have to do things that make people care about it. You have to keep talking and keep promoting and promoting and promoting and promoting and thinking of cool things to do to keep people talking about your music. You do those two things, if you're making people music people like and you keep on pushing out, you're going to do fine. But 
the just pushing it out thing and doing all these cool things, if people don't like your music, you're going to never go anywhere. And that's the great thing. And that's why we need that neutrality. Yes. Bring, keep bringing back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and our second sponsor this week is Get More Fans. As Jesse was just talking about, uh, you can go to getmorefansbook.com and you can read about some of what we were just talking about, trickle down and grassroots stuff. It's a 700-page extensive guide with resources and methods to promote your band. Details everything you need to know to get people to listen to your music and the art around it. There's 20 more pages now and a, and a bonus chapter as well. Uh, so go to getmorefansbook.com. If you like it, if you decide to buy it, um, you can go to Amazon and leave a review. That helps a lot as well. So getmorefansbook.com. Our last topic this week is sort of a dual thing. We got a listener question. Again, go to offtherecord.fm and and send us in if you have anything. But we have a listener question and then uh, a new website called The Runout published an article called Publishing Rights Are More Important Than Ever for DIY Bands. The question was... um, basically asking if we could give a little more information about royalties for small labels. So let's say Bad Timing Records puts out an album and we agree to split the profit from that record 50-50. Do we have to pay royalties on top of that? And how much does a band see also when a label represses their album without knowing? Uh, the second the second part of that question we've talked about in previous episodes, so I'll just quickly uh, touch it up again. So how much uh, does a band see when a label represses their album? It's different for every single band and every single label. Ten years ago, acceptance were given... God, I wonder what kind of budget they got, Jesse. But let's say... Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's call it 100 to just be very nice. Okay, so let's say acceptance got 100 grand to record Phantoms eight years ago. Or maybe it's nine years ago now. Um, so they spent money to record that album... However long it took, let's say they used all 100 grand. Then uh, Columbia or Sony spent money on uh, manufacturing the album and uh, and marketing the album and maybe giving them tour support. So let's say that whole all-in process, just because it's a round number, let's say that cost 200 grand uh, because this was nine years ago on a major label. And so the album tanked because it leaked. Uh, the band broke up and they have been completely inactive since. So I don't know, but let's I don't know how many copies the record has sold, honestly. But let's say they sold forty thousand copies. They might still not have recouped that two hundred grand. So if bad timing records licenses uh that album from them to put on vinyl, what we do is we pay the record label uh X dollars for a license, and then we pay them I think it's about a dollar maybe i even shouldn't say that number i actually don't even know the number but we pay them a certain amount per record we sell as well uh and so maybe if the money we then send to sony helps them recoup the uh license or sorry the the budget then the band members will get royalties however they made a loyal however they've uh structured a royalty agreement with sony nine years ago if it's a band like I don't know, the Wonder Years and their budget for an album was only $10,000 and 10 years from now we reissue their record and we give the Wonder Years, their, let's say Hopeless Records, $10,000, they'll, they'll have probably have been recouped and the band members will see some sort of royalty split from that. Um, that makes sense, right? That totally makes sense. And um, I think that, that one of the things that we're kind of touching on here is that 
every record label contract is a different percentage. And while there's some standards, um, it's a really, really important thing for any of you who are ever going to get into this is to – one of the r- biggest reasons you get a lawyer for all this stuff is that people think like, oh, well, you know, I can't read these contracts. I'm an idiot. I don't understand them. The biggest thing is the reason you don't want your friend's mom – uh, to do who's a lawyer to do your contract and you want an actual entertainment lawyer is the standards in this business and regularly ne- knowing what the regular negotiations are is so important so you don't get screwed over. So a great example is um, a band I worked with recently um, did a contract with a small label and that small label decided to say we're just called a 60-40 split where the label gets 60 and they get 40 uh, of the profits on the record. But the funny thing is the band paid for the record they made with me all themselves. So this was kind of an unfair contract. And I told that to them at the time, but they didn't want to get crazy. And they were just so psyched this label liked them. Um, so they just said, you know what, we're going to sign it. But now that the band's doing really, really, really well um, – they're a little like, hey, this contract is unfair and we think we should renegotiate this because this contract really, really sucked. And it's so important that you go and find out what the standards, because the standards are also always evolving. Like, um, the funny thing is, is like, you know, so when I was managing bands, I was negotiating some of the contracts and I'd find out from my lawyer what the standards are. I see a contract from the same label a few years later and the royalty rates are totally different. And even from band to band on the same label, you know, if one of the biggest things to say is like, if you build up your band and get really popular on your own and you have a huge fan base and you have, let's say, 30,000 likes on Facebook or, you know, 10,000 YouTube subscribers before you're going into this label thing, they're going to give you a much better royalty rate compared to the band that they find that just has a thousand Facebook likes. And so all this is really important, like when we're talking about these royalties, that you do good things for yourself and promote and don't sell yourself too short when you do these things. Yeah, be aware. And frankly, like it's awesome to have a lawyer do everything. But and trust me, like I've I just I've been going through this with some stuff with like having a lawyer who knows all this stuff. It's still really important to like learn as much as you can before you want to smack your brain against the wall. Like because you don't know how many times you're going to go through this in the future. Hopefully it'll be a lot of times in a good, not lawyer, full, ugly way. But, you know, hopefully you can continue making good deals throughout your career in music. So just, like, invest in reading. Uh, really, uh, Invest in reading that 28-page contract that makes you want to cry because it's good for you. Um, but actually, I think what I was sort of getting to as well, um, we paid Sony X dollars per record sold, but then on top of that, we also had to pay publishing. Um, we also had to pay a publishing fee, and uh, the publishing rate is 0.098 cents per record is how a lot of uh, publishing works. And we're gonna get back, we're gonna get into that in a little bit. But so we also had to pay that, and that goes directly to the bands. So the bands definitely should have or will soon be seeing uh, acceptance in this case would be seeing royalties from the amount of records we've sold uh, in term in the sense of publishing but in sense of uh, manufacturing that went to Sony that depends on whether they've recouped their contract or not 
And so the first part of the question was just about what happens with a smaller label. And so I know I kind of answered that with uh, acceptance, but that's sort of a weird, like not every small label does reissues. So now bad timing has been getting into the process of uh, making, you know, signing some bands. And we're very excited to announce that, but not yet. Um, so, uh, a lot of, a lot of these deals are 50, 50. Uh, some of them are not like Jesse's saying, everyone is kind of different. Uh, a label like run for cover and Jade tree and, uh, bad timing. Uh, we do 50, 50 splits. So that means in a typical, in like a standard deal for these labels. Cause again, sometimes it's just different on a band per band basis, but a standard deal would be record label pays for the recording of album. And then after everything is recouped, and that means the budget for the album, that means the amount it costs to make the vinyl records, maybe even how much you're spending on press and publicity. After all of that, uh, after you have recouped, the band and label split 50-50 on the dollar, everything over the recoup on both digital and physical sales and streaming. And that is kind of the standard for a lot of these labels. Someone like Hopeless Arise do a uh, variation called a PPD. And so that doesn't mean you're getting a 50-50. Your, your PPD may be 17% or it may rise 1% point every, uh, every, every release. And you may ask, well, why would you do that instead of a 50-50? And frankly, it's because these labels, one, are never going to do that with you. <laughs> um, uh, they, the- but let's let's also talk about that in exchange rate. Like, why doesn't a rise do the same thing as a bad timing? And it's because rise is buying two page ads right. in alternative press for you, giving you tons of tour support and giving you access to a lot right. of things like a video promotion guy, a pub. I mean, you guys and Run for Cover obviously get a publicist, but there's a lot of other things they're paying for. Right, for you, you go you go cost. to Rise because they are the label that can make you quote unquote blow up. Like they're they're that much bigger, and that means that frankly, you might sell as many records as where you would be seeing a fifty fifty profit split if only Run for Cover could sell a half as many more. Right. The point is, you're supposed to sell more, and hopefully, you'll make more money too. You're just not making a fifty fifty split. And also, these labels are investing so much more. Uh, you know, they might have a staff of twenty people, and we could go back and forth all day if some of these labels need these staffs or whatever. But the point is, like, these labels have more capital to invest in your bands because of that deal is not fifty fifty. Um, and you know, frankly, some bands don't need a label like Rise, or they don't want to go to a label like Rise, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, there are a lot of benefits in my mind still to labels like this and. Uh, it's a standard deal that they make with sort of these PPDs of 18% instead of 50-50. And uh, so that's, to answer the question, uh, after recoup, we would give, let's say, I mean, Knuckle Puck's a good example. So for the vinyl release we did for The Weight That You Buried, it cost us X thousand dollars to make the record. Once we recouped the record, because it sold out, thankfully, we uh, we we paid the band pretty shortly after their royalty statement. And that was very nice. It was the first time we did sort of like a natural royalty instead of uh, just licensing something out. And it was pretty cool for us. It felt good to be able to pay a band something. It wasn't a ton of money, but, you know, hopefully in the future it will be a ton of money for everyone's sake. Uh, But, yeah, I think that, like Jesse was saying, the most important thing is to just, like, know, you know, know your rights. Um, Don't get caught up in... And like, oh my God, this label wants to sign me. 
Labels will take advantage of you if they can. Like that's just because why wouldn't they want to make more money? They are a business, and that doesn't even. That's not even to say that the label's trying to screw you over. It's just, God, if they could get sixty percent instead of fifty, I'll do that. You know, um, and I, it's just kind of like just be smart. It sounds really exciting that a label wants to sign you, or hopefully a label wants to sign you, but. I don't know, I would just do your homework, hire that lawyer because you getting your 10% back on that deal might pay off the lawyer instead of only getting 60-40, you know, just stuff like that, right? Yeah, and, and you know, also when you get this lawyer, make sure it's somebody reputable who do, works in your genre a lot. Like, like, you know, there's a great example of years ago, uh, a band I worked with was going to sign to a small indie label that had put out a few releases and they got a certain lawyer who was a real big shot. Uh, at the time, he had like two bands that were multi-platinum bands and he goes in and tries to negotiate with the small label. He's like, bragging the battle. He's like, I'm going to bring this motherfucker to his knees. Da, 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 da. The label went, fuck off, guys. We don't like you enough to deal with this lawyer. And that's part of the thing too is it's not about you know, waving your penis around and having a sword fight that you bring to this label to the death that you, like, get the best of them. It's about just getting what's fair. If you paid for your own recording, you should not be giving 60% away, and you should definitely be getting a 50-50 deal at least on everything. And at that, there should be even a thing of if you recoup the minimal costs, it may be, you know, you have some more incentives and there should be percentages. Your lawyer will know this stuff, but get a reputable lawyer they're not hard to find because you're paying them. They want your business, and believe me, there's tons of lawyers in this business that are doing this all the time. Yeah, and so I would, again, I would just say uh, it is a negotiation, right? So uh, I don't know, maybe if, I don't know, Neck Deep is negotiating with Hopeless. Hopeless might say, you know, we only want to give you a 15 PPD, but that does not mean Hopeless wants to screw you over and that does not mean you should say what 15 I want 25 right like that's not a legitimate thing because that's not how most labels operate but there's always a wiggle room like at the end of the day hopefully and this is not always the case but hopefully if you're not drive through records you're making <laughs> you're making a deal with a label that wants to make you money they want to make them money and they want everything to be a really nice relationship so there's always room to negotiate but like if you're negotiating with a label you should not be saying, oh, I'm going to fuck them over to get the best deal I can get. You should be saying, I hope we can work out a really great deal for both of us because if one of us are incredibly unhappy, we're going to get dropped or we're going to be pushed on the back burner. Like, be reasonable. Reasonable. Yeah. Re like, being reasonable is good. I think that's the, that's the other thing that sh should be said about my point with, like, you don't want to bring the label to your knees. You want them to also have enough profit that they want to do work for um, you and, uh, you know, prioritize you. You know, the one thing is if they're making a much higher royalty rate on all the other bands, they might say, you know, it's more worth it for me to put my time in. But, you know, also if you get a better royalty rate and a lot of time they're willing to offer you something better, it's because they know you have more potential. So there's a fine balance and you got to figure this out and be savvy with that. Exactly. And I think, you know, m you know, more the case than not with anything like in the world, if you just put on the news, like we tend to hear the bad more than the good. Uh, you know, for mm. every band that isn't complaining, that probably means that they worked out a smart, good deal with their label. And though they not, though they may not be happy with every decision made, because a, you know, a record deal can be like a marriage. Like, 
you're you're not going to be fucking each other over in the worst and stupid kind of ways that could have just been solved with a better lawyer originally. And so just be good to good be good to your fellow label or fellow band. Um Agreed. Uh, I think that's a good place. Do you have any recommendations? I sure do. I saw White Lung two nights oh, ago. My friend saw them in Philly. Man, uh, greatest guitar tone I've heard. They were just insane, and their new record is just so good. Their last record, Sorry, was probably my favorite punk record of the last few years. And, um, man, they just rip. And, you know, if you're one of those dumb guys who think girls can't play drums— Go watch Heather Fortune play drums, all like 90 pounds of her, and she just destroys the most badass drummers out there. I mean, I love this band so much, and that new album is just so good. My friend went, and I was like, oh, should I come? And he's like, I think it's going to scare you. I was like, all right, I won't come. <laughs> I could see that. So that's how um, that went, I and I appreciated you, it. You, I think they're a little too punk for yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not that punk. Um, yeah. I don't have any music recommendations, but... Uh, I have a music podcast recommendation. My friend Evan Lucy has a podcast called Voice in Verse. Uh, every other week, he interviews a songwriter for a band. So this week, it was uh, Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional. And it's just, uh, it's not too long. It's usually like a half an hour episode of just the process of writing their best songs or their favorite songs or just their process as a songwriter. So check that out. Uh, I'll leave a. I'll leave a link in the show notes, and I will also leave a link to the two punk for me, White Lung. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening to us this week. If you want to go to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes or uh, leaving us a review on iTunes helps a whole bunch. That'd be great. Uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>